Church, would you remain standing as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 44. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one of a kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. And it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body... There is also a spiritual body. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. You will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. What a promise. A thing like that. Rest. Not the rest of this world. Not the frantic recreation that fills our weekends. Not that rest that leaves you feeling guilty for all that you've left undone. Not the fitful and tormented rest of this world. But true, lasting, nourishing rest. Rest for the soul. The rest is pictured in the Sabbath. The rest is foreshadowed in the year of Jubilee. It's the freedom not to fight. The freedom to stop scratching and clawing. It's the ability to close our eyes, just knowing that the creator and sustainer of the universe, that we belong to him, that he is our God and we are his children. I don't need to fight for his love. I can't earn his favor. I know that all things in his hands. He is working for my good. So I need only to take refuge, to find rest in him. This was the invitation that Jesus extended. This was the offer that he made as he walked this earth. Come to me and you will find rest. But who would reject such an offer? Well, the powerful, the wise, the learned, the majority of Israel. You see, just before Jesus made that promise there in Matthew 11, he said this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. You see, it's the simple, it's the weak, it's little children. Those are the ones that come to to Jesus weary, worn out from the weight of their sin, just exhausted from the fight of constantly trying to break free, 
just straining to be made right from God and yet all the while knowing there's nothing I can do in my own abilities. There's no power to be found in my own efforts. It's only they that can truly come to Jesus in this way, heavy laden by the burden of their sin, worn down by the weight of their struggle. Dear friends, you must know that Jesus welcomes weary sinners like us. He bids us to come to him. He welcomes us and he promises us rest. But for the wise, the learned, those men that have the world by the tail, they see no need of rest like this. They don't feel any kind of burden upon them, either because they don't hate their sin or perhaps even scarier than that, they think they have none. So why on earth would they ever throw themselves at the feet of Jesus? Why would they ever come to him looking for rest? We've got everything just fine, thank you. We don't need your help. So for them, they wouldn't find Jesus to be a redeemer. He wouldn't be a savior. He would be a stumbling block. And yes, they're blinded by their own sin, blinded by their own self-righteousness. But Jesus makes clear that God has hidden this truth from them. That while he reveals it to the children, to the simple, to the weary, to the weak, to the sinners like us, to these men, it would be hidden. The son would not reveal the father to them. And so they wouldn't find in Jesus Christ a savior. They wouldn't find in Jesus Christ one that welcomed them in with a smile, with a comfort, with a hug. Instead, they would find him as one to be rejected. They never came to him seeking rest. Some would come to him looking for a fight aiming to trap him, aiming to destroy the Son of God. And so, of course, to them, he wouldn't be gentle. He hadn't been gentle. He had confronted them at every turn. He had called them out on their hypocrisy. He had rejected their traditions. He had chased them from the temple court. But they knew that they couldn't arrest him. They couldn't call for his life right there in broad daylight, surrounded by such a great crowd. And so instead, they came in waves, just one loaded question after another constantly trying to trip him up, not looking for wisdom, not looking for knowledge, not desiring to submit to the true Lamb of God. They came with a desire to destroy and to trap him in his own words. And so we began this Holy Tuesday with Jesus and his disciples returning from the east, coming from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, back into Jerusalem. You remember that early that morning they noticed along the roadside the tree that Jesus had cursed the day before, it had withered. It withered all the way to its roots. It was dead. It would never bear fruit ever again. This was a picture of the curse that had come upon Israel. But Jesus used this opportunity for his disciples to teach them about the power, about the purpose of faithful prayer. And then no sooner they entered into the temple courts than a small delegation, this group from the religious, the high court, the supreme court of Israel, they came and they confronted Jesus. They demanded to know, by what authority do you carry out this ministry? And whose name do you come and clean out this temple? No sooner had Jesus dispatched that group than another group came. The Pharisees had teamed up with the Herodians and they came seeking to trip Jesus up, seeking to trap him in his words, asking him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Their desire was either to alienate him from his followers or to perhaps get him to say something, an act of rebellion against Rome that would cost him his life. And yet with absolute brilliance and ease, Jesus completely handled every single question that they had so that the crowd was left standing there looking at Jesus, mesmerized. They marveled. They stood in awe looking at Jesus. Dear friends, that is my hope for us, that each and every time we gather in this place, you leave more marveled, more amazed, more in awe of Jesus Christ than ever before. So there's an elephant in the room, a big wooden elephant. 
is we come on the back end of just decades of worship wars and years gone by and not too distant past where churches are going more casual, where music styles have changed, where pastors are no longer wearing suits. Why on earth would a room full of people, most of them wearing jeans, playing contemporary music, bring out a big wooden pulpit? Dear friends, it is this. This isn't an act. This isn't a play. This isn't theatrics. This is the word of God, and the more I can do to hide myself and expose to you the word of God, the better off we'll all be. The more you recognize that any authority that comes from this place does not come from some man standing up and railing at you, but it comes from the power of God's word under the power of his spirit transforming the hearts and lives of his people, the better off we'll all be. And so I don't know. I don't know whether this pulpit stays or not. I don't know if we bring in another pulpit. It's a little tall. I'm a short guy. This makes me feel like a little kid standing at daddy's table at, at times. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. But I want you to feel the weight of this. I want you to feel the weight of God's word bearing down upon you. And I want you to leave this, this place every single Lord's Day in awe of Jesus Christ and not the least bit impressed with a, pre- a preacher or a praise team, or any other man in this place. So I'd ask you to stand to your feet, please. A reverence to reading of God's word. We return to Mark's gospel. We're in the t- 12th chapter still. We begin in the 18th verse, and this is the word of God. And Sadducees came to him. These are those who say that no, there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray, amen. So it began like this. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So we're introduced to a new group, the Sadducees. We've met the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. Back at the end of chapter 11, those were the ones that came seeking to trip up Jesus. They were the parts of the Sanhedrin that came to confront him. We met the Pharisees, of course. We've seen them all along. They've been dogging Jesus since his time up in the region of Galilee. The Herodians, we discovered them last week. They were a political group 
that came and joined together with the Pharisees in their question against Jesus. But now we meet this new group called the Sadducees. This is the first real encounter we've had with them. That's because these men had been given charge of the temple. They did most of their work in and around the region of Jerusalem. So we haven't heard of very many encounters between them and Jesus just yet. Now the Sadducees, they're the minority group in Israel. The Pharisees, they had a much greater, much greater following, but they contained so much of the power. This was the aristocrats. This was the power brokers. This was the social and the religious elite in that day. So these men, they come to Jesus. Now it's difficult to know. It's difficult to discern exactly where and when this group formed. We, we don't have any instance in scripture that tells us exactly how this group came to be. But by the point of this morning's text, we know that the vast majority of the Sanhedrin, they're composed of people that are counting themselves as, as the uh, Sadducees. We know that most of the high priestly family, they too are Sadducees. We know the Sadducees, they seem just fine with Rome. That as long as the Romans are in power and as long as they have power over the temple and the high court and the, priestlyhood, and the priesthood, that they're just comfortable with Rome running, running the show. So they bend their knee, they submit to Rome. So Mark tells us this morning that this group, this group called the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection. Now those of you that grew up in church, those of you that grew up going to Sunday school, you very likely were told as a child how you're to determine the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know this, don't you? The Sadducees, because they don't believe in the resurrection, they are sad, you see, because they believe in no eternal life. That seemed like high poetry when I was seven. The Sadducees did not believe in eternal life. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, very little is known about what else the Sadducees taught because as I said, they did most of their ministry in and around the temple complex. And of course, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, most of their works, most of their writings, they were burned up then as well. But we do know some additional things. More than just the fact that they were in positions of power, more than just the fact that they didn't believe in the resurrection, if we get to the book of Acts, we read there an encounter between Paul, who was himself a Pharisee. Paul was brought in before the council and he was being accused based on the things that he was saying. He had upset the hornet's nest based on his preaching, based on his teaching, based on even, even some healing. And so this Roman tribute, he brings in Paul before the group. And, and Paul's a wise man. He's there and he recognizes that some of the group are Pharisees and some of the group are Sadducees. And so he determines, this is the way I'm going to wiggle out of this. So we read in Acts 23, 6 through 8. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He figures I'm gonna get these dudes turning on each other. And when he said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Verse eight, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So what we see here is that not only do the Pharisees not believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits, they're materialists. Much like most of the world today, they believe that this universe, this world only exists of the things that can be touched and taste and seen. They rejected the idea of a spirit world. This is the ordinary worldview. Now, this wouldn't have been common amongst most of the Jewish people. It, it would have been strange, in fact, for a Jewish man to believe like this, a man who follows after Yahweh, who is himself spirit, for you to not believe in spiritual things. And yet, what we find is that Sadducees were there. They were quite liberal in this regard. They were liberal in their rejection of the spirit world and the rejection of the things that can't be seen. 
But at the same time, we're told that they're quite conservative in another area. You see, while the world that goes the, view, the way of the materialist, the world that believes that there is no spirit, there is no life after death, and as a result of this, there is no judgment to come for the way you live in this life. As a result of that, it drives the world in a very antinomian, antinomian way, away from the law, away from rules. It doesn't matter how I live. I'm never gonna stand before a judge, and so eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And yet what we see in the Sadducees is it had the opposite effect. They were driven deep into the law. They held fast to the Torah, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of the law. They held fast to the books of the law. And unlike the Pharisees, they said that it's not the oral traditions of men. It's not the laws given through the mouths of men. It is only the law of God. This is God's word, and only God has the right to define and to demand that we obey his law. So they were quite like Jesus in this regard, that they rejected the oral traditions of men. But unlike Jesus, they only held to the first five books of the Bible. They believed that the law was the only portions of God's word that needed to be read, studied, abided by. They rejected much, much of the history. You go from Joshua to Esther. They rejected the books of wisdom, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They had no room for the prophets, either minor or major. They had no room for any of the rest of God's writing. They almost completely rejected anything other than those first five books, just the books of the law. Now, I don't need to warn you about the danger of throwing out entire portions of God's word. But as it regards to this story this morning, you see where it comes into play. Because these men knew nothing about anything beyond the first five books, they would have missed hints about eternal life. They would have missed hints about the resurrection, like in Psalm 16:10, where we read, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption. Or Psalm 49, 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And they certainly would have missed the much more explicit, explicit statements, the statements of prophecy that we read in Job 19, 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Or Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You will dwell in the dust, but awake and sing for joy. And then the most straightforward statement in all the Old Testament, in my heart, my mind, with regards to eternal life comes. In Daniel 12, too, he speaks, it seems explicitly to the resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in these men's stubbornness, in their refusal to hold fast to any portion of the scripture apart from the first five, they completely missed this. They had no knowledge, they had no belief in the resurrection. And so in addition to this, it should be no wonder if they don't believe in spirit, if they don't believe in the resurrection, if they don't believe in a judgment day, of course they wouldn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. They wouldn't see any need for a Christ, for a Messiah, for a Savior. What purpose would he have? There's no judgment to come. There's no salvation that's needed. It's all up to you. You will rise or you will fall on your own obedience. Just keep the law. Stick to the law of God. Whether you're here for 80 years or 100 years, at the end of this thing, that's it. And so it's incumbent upon you to give yourself over wholly and completely to the law. So as a result, what you'll find with the Sadducees is they're actually the most strict of legalists. No, they don't add laws on top of God's law. But in terms of what God's law says, there is almost no room for grace and mercy with them. They're absolute purists absolute they call for absolute religious purity with regards to God's law and any that would seek to come into the temple and so they come to Jesus and they ask him a question saying teacher just like the other guys just like the Pharisees just like the scribes just like the chief priests they come to Jesus with this false air of humility this false air of respect 
they approach him and they call him rabbi, teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. Back to the book of Moses. It's all about the law of Moses. Specifically, they're referring to Deuteronomy 25. There's a, uh, a law there that speaks to what we call leverite marriage. That just comes from the Latin word lever for brother. And so what we find there in Deuteronomy 25 is this. It begins in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the, duty, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall take him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off of his foot, and spit in his face, and she shall answer to him, saying, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Do you follow that? Family name is a big, big thing to the Jewish people. God hadn't just promised the land to the people in general. He had set boundaries and divided up the nation based on tribes, based on families, and so bloodlines and the names of people carrying on through their children, it was critical. It really, really mattered, and so if there was a man and he was married, and he died before he had a son with his wife. You get this picture? That would have ended the man's name. That would have ended his bloodline. In my family, for instance, I am an only son of an only son. If I die without having a son, my name dies at that point. And so God is commanded here as a way to perpetuate that, to continue that on, that if a man dies without a son, that his brother, now it's going to be an unmarried brother. He's not calling the man to get a divorce. He's not calling the man to take a second wife upon himself. But if he's unmarried, it is his duty to go and take his brother's widow as his wife, and that the first son that comes would, be taken, would take on his name so that his name would not be blotted out from all of Israel. And God took this seriously enough that if a brother refused to do this, if you refuse to go in and take your brother's widow and to give her a son in your brother's name, that she was to bring you before the elders, take off your sandal, and spit in your face. Now, in this day and age, we don't have a whole lot of understanding of the significance of taking a man's sandal off of his foot, but everybody knows what it means for somebody to spit in your face. This is an absolute sign of shame to come upon this man. And so if you're a younger brother and your older brother gets married, you hope he marries well. Otherwise, you may get stuck with an ugly wife. <laughs> and so, believe it or not, there's a couple of passages in Scripture that seem to speak to this. There's one that's not, not step-for-step related, but you all know the story of Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer there. You know, of course, that from Boaz came Obed, from Obed came Jesse, from Jesse came David, and from David came Jesus. So this issue here, this particular law, it plays a big role in redemptive history. But there's one instance, even further back than that, even before the law was given through Moses, all the way back in Genesis 38, and I'm not going to read it this morning, you read it at your own time, but all the way back in Genesis 38, we see where this exact thing plays out. We find there that Judah's son named Er, he married a lady named Tamar. Now Er was evil, and so God killed him, took him out before he could give a son to Tamar, and so Judah went to his other son. He went to Onan, and he told him, you must go into your brother, to your brother's wife. You must bear for her a son. 
He refused to do this. He failed in this, and so God killed that man as well. So this is a serious law. It's a significant law. This is a law that would have been very familiar to everyone that was standing there in that temple complex. These guys weren't pulling something out of the way back. It sounds like a weird law for them to call on, but all those that would have been standing there, they would have understood it. And now they lay out for him a situation. They lay out the scenario. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So this lady is either a murderer or she's married into the least healthy family in the history of the world. But she continues to marry, die, and then remarry, or marry and bury, marry and bury, marry and bury, and then remarry. And so we're not told whether this scenario is real or not. It would seem to be made up, wouldn't it? Like at some point, if you're the fourth brother, you go, I ain't marrying her, just spit in my face. I'll take the shame. I'm not going into that widow maker. And so it seems to me that these guys are trying to argue from the ridiculous. And that's a common tactic, isn't it? You, you take something that somebody holds to be true and you show them kind of where this thing could end by laying out an unlikely but possible scenario. Now, oftentimes it's very childish the way we do this, right? Your mom tells you, look, you need to obey your teacher. Just go to school. Whatever your teacher does, just do it. Okay, mom, whatever she says. She tells me to play in the street. I go play in the street. Whatever she says. Okay, mom, whatever she says. It's not this kind of childishness. There are times when we go forward to somebody and we know that they're holding to an untenable position. They're holding to something that just... It, it just doesn't work. It's ridiculous if you actually follow it through to the end. That's oftentimes what I do when I talk to people about matters of theology or church discipline or things like this. You recognize they're holding on to positions that just, they're ridiculous if you actually think them through. And so you lay out before them, again, an unlikely but a possible scenario. This could have happened. A woman could have married seven brothers, and all seven of those brothers could have died without marrying for her a son. And we don't know whether, the, whether there was an eighth brother in line because the woman mercifully dies herself. In verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. This was it. This was what the buildup was all about. The whole question, the whole proposition, it was all building to this question. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they had attempted to drag Jesus into a political conversation. Now the Sadducees, they're gonna try and trip him up on theology. Because you see why, again, they didn't believe in the resurrection most of the people of Israel did. They believed both in a national resurrection, a resurrection of the people at whole. We see this in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. But they also believed in a personal resurrection. We see this with Martha coming out to meet Jesus, where Jesus tells her that her brother Lazarus, though he is dead, he shall rise again. And she says to him, yes, Lord, I know that he, he shall rise in the resurrection in the last days. So clearly the people had this idea of a, of a communal, a corporal, a national resurrection, and an individual in a personal resurrection. So most of the people there, they would have known, they would have believed in the resurrection, and they would have been waiting to hear, what is Jesus going to do here? Because this is a tough scenario. What's going to happen then to this man? If the resurrection is true, the resurrection is real, what's going to happen in the resurrection? Which one of these men will have this wife? And so they thought they had him trapped again. They thought they had him backed into a corner. He was going to surely look foolish. He was going to stumble and mumble as he walked through this. They were going to expose that he didn't possess all knowledge. So they ask. Which of the seven brothers will the woman be married to in the resurrection? Verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Dear friends, don't let anyone convince you that Jesus shied away from confronting sin and false teaching. He came out with great fury against false teaching because there is such a danger of leading people astray 
there's automatically some sense of authority, some sense of respect, some sense of honor that's given to the teacher. That's why he's going to be judged with harsher judgment. And so he comes with great fury against those that teach falsely. And we know based on our studies last week that Jesus doesn't care about the opinions of men. He doesn't care what the crowd around him thinks. He doesn't care about currying favor with powerful people. He doesn't worry about offending anyone that's there. So that's why he comes out and he tells them, this is why you're wrong. You're wrong. Your whole position, it's wrong. Not only have you come to me with the wrong motives, not only have you come to me like hypocrites, pretending as if you seek knowledge, but truly just seeking to destroy me, but you don't even understand the things that you're talking about. You don't even have an awareness of the resurrection or the power of God or the scripture of God or any part of what you're talking about. You're horribly confused. And he tells them because you do not know the scriptures. I'm telling you, for a religious leader in that day, that was like absolutely spitting in their face. It's like telling Babe Ruth he doesn't know anything about baseball. They had dedicated their lives to knowing the law. They had given themselves to understanding the word of God. They stuck as closely as possible to the holy scriptures, at least to the portions that they believed to be scripture. And that's the problem. That they didn't hold to the whole of scripture. The scripture in that day was comprised of the entire Old Testament. And you can't come to God's word and treat it like a buffet. We can't come to God's word and select the things that we like and decide we're going to leave the other pieces. That's really the case with all of Christian life. God has called us to a life of obedience. And we don't get to leave the vegetables on the side and go straight for the candy. We are going to receive it all or we're going to find ourselves in a position like this. But this wasn't the case because these men stuck to the book of the law. They missed everything else. Now, most professing believers were not this blatant with it. We're not all like Thomas Jefferson that would literally physically cut and paste his own Bible because he wanted to remove, he was embarrassed of any reference to Jesus' miracles or to his resurrection. Most people aren't that blatant with it. But from a very practical sense, we effectively remove any portions of Scripture we don't like by refusing to preach it, by refusing to teach it, by refusing to study it by refusing to live life, live like it. And so what we do is we find ourselves with completely unbalanced theology. We find ourselves worshiping a God that's 100% love and no wrath. We find ourselves following a Jesus that's 100% mercy and no judgment. We find ourselves building a church that's 100% fellowship and no discipline, or the opposite. We find ourselves being so hard-hearted, so doctrinally bound, so consumed with the idea of a judgment day that we completely miss the love and mercy and grace and goodness of God in our life. You see, there's ditches on either side in all things. We constantly find ourselves as the people of God trying to walk in the middle of the road because our hearts are constantly driving us to the left or to the right, constantly dragging us too much towards one particular attribute of who God is that we completely neglect the fact that Sunday we shall stand before him as judge. Completely relying on the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God and completely forgetting the fact that we're meant to call each other out for our sins, to call each other to repentance. There's ditches on either side of the road and the only way that you avoid these ditches is if you hold to the full counsel of God's word. You allow the fullness of God's word to inform your theology, to inform your life, to dictate who we're going to be as a corporate people. But beyond this, even the scripture that these men had chosen to believe, they didn't understand that right either. I mean, They didn't believe in angels, and yet they held to the book of Genesis. There's angels in the book of Genesis, in case you're wondering. What about the three men that come to Abram in Genesis 18? What about those that continue on to Lot in Genesis 19? What about Jacob's ladder? Has anybody ever heard of this? I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence of angels in the Old Testament. 
in the five books that they held to. In addition to this, when we get to the book of Hebrews, we're told something about the way we're to think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember there in Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham, being a man of faith, he trusted in God. So much so that he knew that even if he were to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, that God could raise him from the dead. There was nothing for God to resurrect him because he knew that the promises of God were that from this child shall come children like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the sea. So he knew that based on the promises of God, based on the power of God, that it was nothing for God to raise his son from the dead if that's what it was gonna take. And yet these men, they completely missed that. They missed it in part because without the wholeness of scripture, without the full counsel of God's word, it's impossible to rightly interpret scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. And this isn't just on the difficult passages. It's just that we don't read passages of scripture in a bubble. Look, memorizing individual Bible verses, that's good. It keeps them on your lips. It keeps them on your heart. It keeps them on your mind. But when all you study is individual passages of scripture, you can get really myopic. You can get really drilled down on this one truth, and then you don't have the rest of scripture to help you understand, to help you see, and then you end up in some really scary and bad places. That was the case with these people. Is this not the reason why you're wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Not only were they lacking eyes to see and ears to hear, they knew nothing of the power of God. You see, it was the power of God that Abram was resting upon when he knew God, you're the God that has breathed stars. You're the God that has created me in the first place. You're the God that gave me this child, this miraculous child, when I was as good as dead. It will be nothing for you to raise this child up again. These men knew the power of God. The Sadducees, they didn't. Again, because they didn't study the wholeness of God, the whole counsel of God's word. But beyond this, because they didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. We're told that one of the big differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the Sadducees believed that God was completely disconnected from his creation. He wasn't sovereign. He wasn't providential. He wasn't working through his creation. And when you find yourself in that position, then you believe if God is powerful, his powerful has no effect on my life. His power has no effect on my decisions. His power has no effect on the things that happen in this day-to-day life. That's where these men found themselves. So completely reliant upon themselves and their ability to keep the law. So satisfied with themselves that they never allowed themselves to sit out at night, lay up and look at the stars and feel tiny. They never allowed themselves to stay up at night just feeling the weight of God's power, his control, his sovereignty over all of his creation. Even the holy scriptures they held to, they never allowed themselves to come to the law and be driven to their knees with an understanding of just how helpless and weak they were. They knew nothing of the power of God. And without that sense of power, there's no room. There's no understanding for a resurrection. The idea of God bringing men back to life is ludicrous. And I need you to see, this is where neutered religion leads you. This is where unbalanced theology leads you. This is where powerless morality leads you completely throwing away the greatest gifts that God offers. We stand with Paul in crying out that we long to know the power of the resurrection, that we count the loss of things in this world as nothing. We count them all as rubbish. We freely let loose of everything, all of the material. It's like nothing to us, that we may just know more the power of God, the same power that he raised his son, the same power that he's going to raise us, the same power that's revealed in the stars, the same power that's revealed in the creation of a baby, the same power that we see in ordering all of creation towards his appointed end. We long to see and feel and experience more of that power. We long to know that that power is at work for us as his children, that part of what it means for him to work all things for our good is that that power goes to work for your good and, of course, for his glory. So Jesus, he corrects the Sadducees for their faulty theology, but it's not just for their sake because he knows the majority of them, they will not turn, they will not believe, they will not trust, but he speaks to them for our sake. That's the beauty of the scriptures is we hear these encounters. 
We realize that God is speaking forward 2,000 years into our ears. We realize that we're not just reading some story. We're not just reading some history. The living word of God, it informs us as we stand here today. And Jesus says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He tells them the whole basis for your story is faulty. You don't even understand what you think we believe. Do you ever feel like that? People come to you and they want to confront you about your religion and they don't have a clue what your religion is. They want to confront you about the Bible and they don't have a clue what your Bible says. He says, you don't even understand the things that you're talking about. But they weren't alone. You see, apparently the Pharisees and many of the other religious leaders in that day, they believed, yes, they trusted in a resurrection. They trusted in life after death. But they believed that there was so much continuity, that it was so much like this life, that all of our relationships would be identical your wife, your children, your friends, your church, that all these relationships, they continue on exactly as they were today. Jesus correcting their thinking. And again, we're so thankful that he is because we know so little about eternal life. We know so little about the resurrection apart from teachings like this. We do know that it's magnificent. We do know that we long for it. And so what he tells them is, when they rise from the dead, I need you to hear the assurance there. When He's affirming right there in that very first sentence, that very first word. This thing's a done deal. It's happening, not if. Now, this wasn't new teaching for Jesus. Again, going back to the story of Lazarus, as Martha came out to him, and Jesus is talking to her about the fact that he's going to raise her brother from the dead, and she's confused. She thinks he's talking about the resurrection in the last days, and you know what he says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Whoever believes in me and lives shall never die. He's telling her, you've got this whole thing mixed up. You're longing for the coming of a Messiah to give you this thing called eternal life. You're longing for this Messiah to come and give you the resurrection. I am the resurrection. You've got it completely twisted. You're waiting for something else, and that's why you're looking past me. These men, these Pharisees, yes, they longed for eternal life. They longed for the resurrection, and yet they had no clue, no concept whatsoever that Jesus Christ is that resurrection. Dear friends, I, I feel like them. I feel like them in so many ways as I come to Jesus Christ and I'm looking to him for these gifts. I mean, I recite John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then I look behind his back and I go, okay, where's this thing called everlasting life that you're gonna give me? Forgetting that in John 17, three, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the true and living God, and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ. He's not the giver, he's the gift. He's not just the promised, he's the hope. He is everything. He's not just coming to give us a bunch of good things in this life. He's not just coming to give us a bunch of good things in the next life. He's coming to offer himself. That's the whole hope of Christianity. That's the whole goal of his Christianity. It's the whole purpose in Christianity. As I lay in my office and I pray before I come out here, that's my desperate plea. God, just give them you. Give them more of you. Show them who you are. You wonder why we dedicate ourselves so deeply to studying of God's word, to seeing of God's word, to knowing God's word, because this is eternal life. You have eternal life now, and the more that you drink from this fountain, the more that you consume this word, the more that you live in this word, the more that you see and know and cherish God, the more you experience eternal life now. That's the whole point in this. That's what so many churches have missed. They believe that Jesus is some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. He's just the path to a bunch of really, really good stuff. And yes, he is the giver. 
It's only in him that we can receive these things. But what he comes to give is him. If you show up in this place and you're looking for good things in the name of Jesus Christ and the good thing that you look for isn't Jesus Christ, then you've completely missed the mark. You've completely lost out on this thing called Christianity. Dear friends, Jesus is the offer. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. The resurrection is here and it's me. Don't wait for something in the future. Yes, there will be a time when I'll return and I'll restore all things. But even now, even in this moment, don't wait till you die for eternal life. You can have eternal life here because the Son of God is here. And he is offering himself to you. That's the offer. That's the promise. And I pray that you see this. It's so easy to get consumed, to become materialists. Not, not vocally. We don't say that we reject the spirit world. We don't say that we reject the angels. We don't say that we reject the judgment. We don't say that we reject the resurrection. But ultimately, we live as if this world is all there is. We live as if these material things are all that matters. We completely miss the fact that Jesus offered himself. We blow right past him in seeking the good things, and we will get neither. So this is how he's informing these men. He's telling them. And yet still, these men too would be raised. You see, it's not just those that believe in Jesus Christ that will be raised in the end. It's not just those that have trusted in him. It's not just those with eyes that see and ears that hear. It's not just those, even these men that despise Jesus, even these men that seek to destroy him, even these men that came trying to trip him up on this day, even these men that did not believe that there would be a resurrection, they too shall be raised. But it's gonna be a whole lot different experience for them. We read about another encounter Jesus had back in John 5 with the religious establishment. They're confronting him yet again on the issue of authority. And he says this, verse 28, John 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone's going to be raised. Those that have done good those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, those that are found clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they will be raised to life and blessing. Those that do not, they will be raised to judgment and punishment. But life goes on after this. We cannot live the way of the world that eat, drink, because tomorrow we die, as if there's nothing on the backside of this. Just as I've told you, there's no way to escape God's pattern. There's no way to escape his plan. Every man will stand before him in the end, even the sinful, even those that reject him and refuse to believe in him. And so that's what he's saying here saying that all will rise. And yet he tells us something particular about what this life is going to look like, particularly for the saints, what this life is meant to look like. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now Jesus doesn't say that they are angels in heaven. That's a common idea, and it's okay, nothing to be bashful about if you believe that. Many people, many good, solid Christian people, for periods of their life, they believe that when you die, you become an angel. But that's not true not what the Bible says. Jesus doesn't say here, when you die, you become an angel. You are an angel. That's not where angels come from. God created the angels. You'll remember that when we read week after week, month after month on end, as I consistently read through Nehemiah 9 and that prayer, you remember how it began. You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heavens of heavens, and all their hosts. The hosts of heaven, that's the angels. It would appear sometime before the sixth day that God had created all the angels. Men don't die and become angels. Babies don't die and become angels. Angels are created beings, and this is a good thing. We would rather be men than angels. Now, there's a time when we're a bit lower than the angels. They are more powerful than us. They are sent by God to serve us, to bring messages. They are sent by God. They're used of God. They see God right now in ways that we aren't able to for a season and for a time, and yet the day will come when we will judge even the angels. 
We don't want to be angels. We certainly don't worship the angels, but in this way, we will be like them. Like them in the sense that we won't marry and won't be given in marriage. Now, why do angels not marry? Well, it's in part because God made all the angels and they didn't need to go procreate and make baby angels. That's not where angels come from. So because of that, there was no need for them to marry. You'll remember that this is one of the major purposes God gave us in marriage, that you would be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and have authority and dominion over it. Represent me in creation. Now men die. If we didn't procreate, if we didn't make more babies, because we died, eventually that thing would end. But this isn't the case with angels. Angels don't die. God created all the angels it would be, and they don't die. And so there's no need for them to marry. There's no need for them to make babies. And he's saying with regards to men, because eternal life is, well, eternal, you don't die. There's no need for you to make more babies. There's no need for you to procreate in this way. So that once you die, that picture goes away. In addition to that, there's another purpose in marriage. The purpose is to paint to the world a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. But as Christ and his bride come together, as we're there for the marriage supper, there's no, no longer a need for us to paint that picture to the rest of the world. So there's no longer a need for marriage in the resurrection. There's a third reason for marriage as well, and you don't get this one very often, but dear friends, you need to understand that one of God's purposes in marriage is for your sanctification. You wonder why he didn't let you marry the perfect woman? So that you can change, so that you can learn mercy and forgiveness and grace. There's no need for that once we're perfected in eternal life. So because of this, there's no need for marriage any longer. There's no need for marriage. They don't marry. They don't marry, they're not given in marriage. Now some people, they camp out there and they say, well, Jesus said they don't marry and they're not given in marriage, but he doesn't talk about the marriages that are already happened. But that's just craziness because he's addressing the fact that this woman wouldn't be married to any of them. Clearly what he's saying is there's no marriage in heaven. Whether it's your first marriage, your second marriage, your third marriage, your seventh marriage, there is no marriage in heaven. And now this can make some of us really sad. I hope that it makes some of you sad, at least at first glance. I hope that you enjoy your spouse. I hope that you love your husband and that you cherish your wife. And I hope that the thought to you of being without them is, is heavy. I hope you'd feel somewhat lost, at least from an earthly standpoint as we stand today. You think, man, I'd be lost without this person that God has joined me together. But don't worry. The scripture makes clear is there is no loss in heaven. There is no sorrow. There is no tears. Everything that we enjoy here in this life, it will only be sweeter in eternity, better, deeper, more true. I can't love my wife less in heaven. It can only increase, assuming she is a believer, that is. Assuming she will be joined with me there. She is a believer. I meant your wife. My wife's over there. She's good, I'm pretty sure. But, but your relationship with your wife is not going to be more shallow. It's going to be deeper than you could have ever imagined. Your relationship with your children, your relationship with your grandchildren, is you're no longer clouded by sin and selfishness, as they are no longer clouded by sin and selfishness, as you are truly exposed and know each other in ways you will never know each other in this world. Dear friends, your relationship with the saint that is the greatest stranger to you on earth will be so much deeper then than your relationship is with your wife today. We can't even fathom. But in, with regards to your love for your wife, is it going to be a special relationship? Like, is my love for David going to be the same as my love for Amanda in, in heaven? Is there going to be some, some special relationship there? I don't know. Scripture isn't explicit in this, but I do know one thing, that my love for Amanda will not shrink. My love for Amanda will not diminish. It will only be deeper. It will only be greater. It will only be more pure. I will know her in ways I can never know her in this lifetime. She will know me in ways that I can never know her in this lifetime. And I will know her. I will recognize her. 
She will have a body. In the resurrection, she will have a body, a physical body, a personal body, a body that I recognize. Now, it won't be identical, as David read to us early, but I'll somehow know her. Jesus makes this clear in his resurrection. He was standing there, and he was revealing himself to the man. And you remember Thomas wanted to feel the nail prints and, 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 and feel the place in his side, the hole in his side. And you, the beautiful words there in Luke 24, 39, he says, look at my hands and look at my feet. It is I myself. It's me the same Jesus that you were with for these three years, the same Jesus that was on the cross, the same Jesus that went in the tomb, it is I myself, physically resurrected, bodily resurrected, personally resurrected. The promise of the resurrection, and dear friends, you must insist on this. You must. This isn't a minor deal. This isn't a secondary deal. This is a primary deal. It's a non-negotiable for the Christian. Bodily, personal resurrection. You must believe in this. This is the ultimate end of our salvation. You've got to understand that there are many people in that day, and there's many people today, they believe that the physical is the enemy, that the physical is vile and sinful, that God hates the physical and he only loves the spiritual. And so therefore, the whole goal of spirituality, the whole goal of Christianity, the whole goal of religion is to escape the physical. You ever heard of nirvana? I need to just escape the physical and get off into some law-law land of myself. And yet that's not at all the picture that God paints. God made us. The beauty of the way in which God made man, unlike anything else, is he forms him out of the dust of the ground and then spirit in the body. And it was good. It was very good. So as Jesus Christ came and he took upon himself the fullness of humanity, a human body, a human mind, human will, human emotions, the fullness of what it means to be man. God loves this and God plans to redeem it. That's the ultimate end to our redemption. So that as man dies, we depart. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. The minute you die, your body goes into the ground and it begins to turn into dust. And then you depart and you either go to heaven or you go to hell. But immediately your body goes into the ground and turns into dust. But he's not done with it yet because there's still a greater reward to be had. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we want to be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This tent, this thing, we groan because it's weak. It's dishonorable and it's frail and it's broken and I've sinned against it in more ways than I know how to count. And so I long to be shed of this tent, but not that I can run around naked. Not that I can spend eternity in some disembodied state that I could be further clothed, clothed in glory, clothed in power. That's the desire for Paul. That's the desire for saints for all time. We don't desire to float around like this. And we see this picture, I believe, it's a, a picture of this in Revelation 6, 11. It's the saints that have been slain for the word of God. They're around the throne and they're crying out, how much longer until you will avenge us? And then we read Revelation 6, 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. I think that's part of the picture there. How much longer until we receive our resurrected bodies? How much longer until you come back in power and in judgment? And that day will come. Is immediately in this life as we die, our body goes into the ground, we go to heaven, and we are there with the Lord. But then when that final trumpet sounds, when Jesus Christ returns, 1 Thessalonians 4, it paints a very clear picture of this. As those that are dead in Christ, we are first those that will rise. Our bodies risen to meet perfect bodies. Then those of us that are still left alive, we will receive our resurrected bodies, and we will be risen up to meet with him. The picture is going out to meet him so that we can turn around and come back with him. It's like going out into your front lawn to meet a, a friend or a neighbor that's coming and then coming into the house with him. We are risen up to meet with God in the, in the sky. We meet Jesus in our glorious resurrected bodies and then we return to reign in a new heavens and a new earth for all time. 
but not with the same kind of bodies we have today. We know something about those bodies. Again, that's what David read to us at a 1 Corinthians 15. I would urge you tonight or this afternoon, just go read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15. If that doesn't get you jacked up, I don't know what will. But what it says here is that you, what we have is a perishable body. It will be sown. It will be sown. You, you, you've got to die. The seed has to die that from it something else can come. And so they sow this perishable body and from it comes imperishable. A body that will never waste away. A body that will never get old. A body that will never die. What is sown in dishonor. There's a lot of dishonorable things about the body. I mean, just some of the natural processes of the body is pretty gross, right? So what is sown in dishonor will be risen in glory. What is sown in weakness, our bodies are weak, it will be risen in power. What is sown in natural body, it will be raised a spiritual body. This is the ultimate hope. The fulfillment of redemption. That we would have bodies with which to worship and enjoy Jesus Christ for eternity. And we must insist on this. To deny this is to deny the truth of the gospel. To deny this is to deny the ultimate hope, the promise at the end of this thing for us. Without it, Paul says, we're to be pitied amongst all people. If we believe in a resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore believe in a resurrection for us, we're to be the most pitied people in all the earth because we're believing promises that won't come true. We're believing in a pie in a sky God that's not gonna do what he's promised he's going to do for us. So we must hold to this tightly Trusting then that in the end, in those final days, that the purpose for this new and glorious life, the purpose for this new and glorious body, that as we stand before God in heaven, he says, the pleasures that I have for you there, your body can't handle them. I'm taking you somewhere, and that ain't going to work. Your mom ever come home and tell you, look, you need to go take a shower and change clothes. We're going somewhere special tonight. Your holy jeans aren't going to work. Your greasy hair isn't going to work. Go take a shower, put on a suit, you know you're going somewhere good that night. The God of the universe looks at you and says, as wonderful as your bodies may be, they're not going to work where we're going. They're not going to be able to sustain the pleasures that you will experience in eternity. It will melt your face. I'm going to give you a spiritual body. I'm going to give you a powerful body. I'm going to give you an honorable and glorious body so that you can enjoy all that I have waiting for you. Guys, I've experienced a lot of pleasure in this body, right? I've eaten good things. I've gone good places. I've, I, I, I've, I've, I've kissed my wife, right? Like there's a lot of good stuff that I've enjoyed in this body. And it ain't even close to what we will experience in the resurrection. It isn't even close. And God says, this one won't do. So it will die. It will turn to dust. And I will raise you up into something glorious and powerful and beautiful and honorable. And it will be you. You'll still be you and I'll still be me. How does it work? I don't know. I'm giving my body to Baylor. They're going to cut on me for seven years and then cremate me. How's that going to work? Then my wife's going to scatter me in the ocean, and then some fish are going to eat me. And those fish are going to do their thing, and then it's going to be coral or something. So what does this work? How does this work? I mean, honestly, right? How does it work? So like, let's, let's say she scatters my ashes, a fish eats me, and then David eats the fish. Now parts of me are in David. And then David dies, and then what? We don't need to get too hung up on this. But we, we do know that we're constantly losing bits of ourselves, right? I mean, sci science says that to some degree you won't be the same person, the same molecules, the same particles in like 10 years. Like there's constant turnover. So there's more to you than this specific cell. But you'll be you. And I'll know you, and I'll love you. I'll love you more than I ever have. And we enjoy these pleasures forever, and we look at each other and go, you didn't know what you are talking about. This is so much better. 
Guys, we don't talk about heaven enough. I don't talk about heaven enough. I don't talk about the resurrection enough. I don't talk about the promises enough. So we walk around like a bunch of sad sacks, acting as if this life is all that there is. And then just in case these guys had just missed it, in case they still didn't understand, he takes them back to, he's like, okay, look, you're the people of the first five books. You love the Pentateuch. Let me take you back to the Pentateuch. And he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? I mean, he just keeps just, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? So there was no chapter and verse back then, so he couldn't say, don't you know Genesis or Exodus 3.6? So instead he says, don't you know the passage of the, of the bush with Moses? How God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, when I read that verse, the first thing I don't think is, yeah, the resurrection but what Jesus is saying is, look, God would not say, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. If those dudes were dead and gone. Now, they were dead hundreds of years before this moment. This is 400 years after the family had gone into Egypt. And yet he's saying, they are still with me. Dear friend, that's the promise of every funeral we preach. The funeral of a believer, at least. That's the promise that keeps us from running around this world terrified of the things that happen to us. What's the worst thing this world can do? Do not fear the one that can destroy your body. The worst they can do is destroy your body. The worst they can do is torture your body. The worst they can do is take your family away from you. Dear friends, we do not fear that because we know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they live. They live now and God is still their God and he is still working for their good. And dear friends, when you come at it like this, there's nothing this world can throw at us that should cause us to fear. We should be a bunch of people running around with a goofy grin on our face knowing what awaits us, knowing the more that this world brings against us, it's just treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven. That we should so long for that day that no, we're not a bunch of risk takers. No, we don't run around with our seatbelt off. No, we're not trying to get there any sooner than God has called us to get there. But we have no fear about any of this. Dear friend, that's what we come to celebrate on a Sunday morning. The promise that the God of the universe doesn't let loose of any that are his and that nothing shall separate us from his love, not life and not death. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that um, you don't abandon us to Sheol. You don't abandon us to the grave. That the very thing that this world counts is the end. The very thing that this world fears most is nothing but a transformation for your child. It's a stepping out of one place and into your glorious presence. We thank you for the promise that there will come a day when that final trumpet will sound and Jesus Christ will come in power and glory and that we too shall come with him. Father, I thank you that this isn't it. I thank you that this life isn't the highest and the best and the greatest. And yet, Father, as we are here now, as we wait for eternity, we don't wanna be and active, we don't want this life to be wasted. We wanna be used for your glory. And we want to enjoy eternal life here and now. We know that to know you, to know you, the living God, and to know your son, Jesus Christ, that that is eternal life. Help us to embrace and to celebrate that. Help us to use this life as an act, as a sacrifice of absolute worship to you. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.